China on the uh, contrasting and interesting differences between cultural heritage policies in Europe and, their, and, and what is being developed in China. And it's come out of uh, a kind of collaboration with the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences and a group, uh, particularly in uh, Germany and the UK, uh, that uh, have had various workshops, about three workshops so far, and it's all meant to end up with a grand conference in uh, Beijing uh, this September. And uh, it's, uh, as usual, you know, sort of slightly confusing as to exactly what is happening, what's coming out of it. Um, but, you know, everybody seems to be having a good time. But I think there are some very interesting uh, conflicts and contrasts being revealed. As part of this, uh, I'm working with Harriet Evans, who's Professor of China Studies at the University of Westminster and is Director of uh, China Modern Studies Centre there. And uh, because I coordinate the MA in Cultural Heritage at UCL, uh, I'm perhaps more uh, giving the, uh, the heritage input to it, and uh, she's introducing me to China. And I'm gradually getting some kind of sense of things a bit. And what we've done really in the last two years is uh, particularly focus on the rise of private heritage initiatives, private museum and heritage initiatives in China, and particularly their locality, which often seems to be in the marginal border regions of China, and where I particularly tended to focus and want to do some more fieldwork is in uh, southwest China, in the provinces of Sichuan and Yunnan. And Yunnan, you might well know, because the UAESS or something was held there in Kunming last year, so some people had a good time there. Okay, I've uh, got a lot here, so I'm just going to read, if you don't mind. Okay, in China, official cultural heritage discourse serves to justify both the rule of the Chinese Communist Party and its interpretation of history. This influences both how heritage sites are selected and how they're used and managed. But the official discourse has seen several recent changes. We could detect a development from an almost exclusive focus on the revolutionary heritage in the Mao era period to a rediscovery of China's imperial past and a more civilizational-based patriotic heritage narrative in the 1980s and into the early 90s and more recently to the identification and celebration of a more historically thematic and aesthetic focus today. And if you remember the introduction of the Beijing Olympics and the 60th anniversary of the Chinese Communist Party in 2009, you'll, you'll, you'll know what I mean. A growing number of ordinary Chinese citizens, scholars and journalists furthermore engage with and sometimes challenge the official cultural heritage discourse with the result that alternative ways of imagining the past, exploring diverse traditions, identifying and relating to different historical and cultural sites, and conceiving of place today are circulating in Chinese society. And these developments and the commercialization of the cultural heritage and the growth of heritage tourism in China have led to more complex negotiations and contestations surrounding museums, placemakings, and heritage sites at different scales. There's an obvious scale of dimension to cultural heritage in China. We can speak about and identify sites that celebrate and commemorate local or regional, as well as national identity, history, and placemakings. With UNESCO's current designation of 37 World Heritage Sites in China, we can even talk about the emergence of a China-scale global heritage. The relationship between different levels or scales of heritage therefore is complex, and the local heritage can also jump scale when it's elevated to national or global heritage value. In China, officially recognised cultural heritage sites are selected and nominated at different levels of the state administration. In other words, both at national, provincial, municipal and district country level, and county level. But heritage sites are polysemic in the sense that the same site can be used for different purposes and elicit different memories and spatial practices among different individuals and groups of people. For individuals, a sense of place and personal attachment often builds on the cultural practices associated with the site. And this is often more important than the actual age of the physical structure 
valued by experts, or the national or political aspects valued by state authorities. So when an ancestral hall that originally was built as a site for family and local commemoration becomes a designated national heritage site, or a base uh, for patriotic education, this is a scalar event imposed from above with the aim to incorporate and disarm what could be a potentially politically challenging local placemaking and commemoration. Although local residents in the process may lose their ancestral hall or see it transformed into a museum under the management of a cultural heritage bureau or a tourism company, they may also continue to celebrate family and local identity at this very site so that different placemakings and senses of past are a play at the same site. Furthermore, they can also make use of translocal networks to reach out to family members who live in other parts of the country or even abroad. So when migrants travel back to their home village for New Year celebrations and partake in ceremonies in their ancestral hall, they move between different scales of placemaking as well as exemplifying translocal belongings. And this shows that spatial and scalar negotiations are contestations and contestations are ongoing processes in the making of heritage sites. And I won't go into detail, but there's many cases, you look in the, in the, uh, in the newspapers, for example, you know, of a case of a man being cited as having discovered some heritage imports of a locality of the village where he comes from. And he opens a website and starts to amass a sort of local interest in it. And over time, you know, sort of this, he then creates his own narratives of belonging around this website. So one, you know, from, uh, you know, a guy called Chong Jiaobo, a man from Taishun, you know, describes himself in relationship to discovering that the bridges over the river in his hometown have this uniqueness. And how he creates a website, he meets his wife through the website, he meets all his people through it, he starts to form a sense of identity with where he's coming from. And, you know, sort of now it all leads to uh, the moment uh, the, the site is no longer called Taishun Covered Bridges, it's now a site of Chinese covered bridges, and this most recent incarnation is being nominated on the Chinese World Heritage List for recognition. So this is what I mean by this uh, scalar jump. Something very local, taken up, and then, you know, it's appropriated and taken up by various levels above. And finally, you know, if successful, the person becomes successful, but particularly the site becomes successful. Okay, these are some just general contextual points in order to emphasise that, of course, there's nothing new about the political use of the past in China. Um, although the forms it's taking now in terms of heritage, preservation, scale are very novel. Most recent example of that is Zagetti, um, was, uh, you know, was nominated to, by UNESCO to make a, a proposal for conservation, uh, having a conservation policy in China. Uh, they made a, a big report called China Principles. It's just been rejected uh, by, by the Chinese Bureau of um, Sacred Relics as being inappropriate to China, and they're going to rewrite it as being uh, more than in the guise which would be more appropriate to China. So this, this is not to say, therefore, there's not been uh, long histories of collecting and displays of artifacts, paintings, writings, and drawings, nor, of course, that the Cultural Revolution didn't represent a massive break in this, but that at the moment, and in the last decade, really just in the last decade, something really significantly new is occurring around this heritage discourse in China and the power of it. And as the example I just said, it's not just top-down, it's particularly the way in which this relationship between the bottom-up and the top-down is meeting and what is going on there. And that's what really interests me. Okay, since the beginning in 1989 of the Open Door Policy, Museum building linked to the development, planning and expansion of tourism has seen the major top-down development. And again, this is a matter of scale. In 1955, there were 55 museums in China. And most of these were closed and the collections destroyed or strong dispersed during the Cultural Revolution. At present, there are about 3,200 museums in China, 
And there are plans to open 100 plus new museums in this year alone, and to have as many museums as the whole of Europe by 2015. In the 10th five-year economic plan, that's 2001 to 2005, one of the goals was the development of modern museums. And all city level authorities were instructed to include museum construction in, cities, in their city urbanization plans and to create museums as the symbols and landmarks of the state in local administration. Just some examples. This is well-known Shanghai uh, National Museum. This is recently opened the Jinxing Museum in Chengdu in Sichuan. Massive archaeological theme park. This is just one uh, museum opened in uh, to the major Bronze Age archaeological sites in Chengdu and just outside Chengdu. This is Jinxing, and it's a massive covered excavation of the uh, you know the early Shu uh, Bronze Age site of Jinxing. And as you can see, the stratification is all intact and it's all drying out, and there are big problems about conservation because particularly the ivory tusks are all, you know, have now had to be covered up and sprayed and whatever. So this whole issue of conservation of what is otherwise a massive encompassment, you know, of an archaeological site, with the idea of just getting people to visit, um, is causing lots and lots of technical problems. And again, you have this idea of massiveness and monumentality in new museums. And go on websites. I mean, most recently it's Inner Mongolia, which, uh, very interestingly, of course, is not part of China. It's part of China, but not part of China. The first thing they built are these massive new museums in order to emphasize that this is Inner Mongolia and not China. In one case, it's a new city where the first thing that's been built is a massive Fragiri type museum before a hospital had been built, before a school had been built, um, before anything of any major facility has been built. So cities like Shanghai, Nanjing, Kunming, Chengdu have come to call themselves cities of museums, which is an indication of their superior administrative status as modernizing, as modernizing cities. And many national and provincial museums are under refurbishment, and many local museums are opening at a prefectural level. So the museum structure is refurbishing itself in order to raise itself up the scale in the way I've just been described. Museum building is therefore a massively political issue, bound up with the idea of competing centres of civilization in China. So this museum about the Bronze Age, early Shu in Chengdu and Sichuan is clearly also about Sichuan being a competing centre to Beijing and to Han in contemporary China. They wanted to put the two museums and the whole early shoe civilization in for a world, you know, UNESCO, UNESCO World Heritage Site. Beijing has just refused to allow them to do it. So the politics of this are mind-blowingly complicated, and you know, people like me just have no, <laughs> no access to it really, except as a kind of seeing some of what's going on. Another important difference from the Western Museum here is that state museums and collections are mostly attached to the ministry that deals with the wider functions uh, they refer to, rather than being part of some general, generic ministry of culture that's responsible for all museums. So a military museum is administered by the Ministry of Defence, an art museum by the Ministry of Culture, a natural history museum by the Ministry of Environment, and so on. In addition to the public funding, Private funding also enters into the state-run cultural industries as well as contributing to the growth of private museums. So although there's a distinct categorization of public and private in terms of collections, museums and displays, uh, they're in fact strongly implicated. Museums and therefore the museal object is undergoing very profound changes at the moment. But what from and what to? There's obviously strong themes about continuity. 
there's a broad outline of, you know, if you like, changing attitudes to the past written in about in China from the reforms of Deng Xiaoping, which broadly speaking would say that in the early 20th century there was a rejection of the imperial Chinese past and a rejection of imperial dynastic traditions. Then in the Republican period there were attempts to revise the imperial past, bring more in line with the influence of Western political theory on sovereignty and territorial state, so that the past and you know, the imperial past had to come into line with, modern, you know, with the idea of the modern state. And interestingly now, China, China, is, China, China calls itself an imperial, a civilizational empire, or maybe a civilizational name. They won't call themselves a nation state. There are also attempts, um, and certainly to, obviously, for this to be replaced by a very modified Soviet-style scientific view of the past in the Mao era with a strong focus on evolutionism and with the whole grounding of claims to legitimacy, you know, sort of in the principles of scientific socialism. So the more recent aesthetic and choreographed celebrations of the Beijing Olympics and the 60th anniversary of the People's Republic, whilst it has continuity to that uh, part, that uh, Mao era past, it's very interestingly a transformation of it. The fact that choreography was such a significant feature of the Beijing Olympics and a very important Chinese choreographer was employed to do both of them. I mean, you only have to look at the, you know, the women in the first rank of the military, women's military parade in the, you know, in the, uh, you know, sort of in the 60th anniversary uh, event to know that this was organized around principles of dance and not about you know, militarism. But the actual collection and presentation of museum objects during the early 20th century don't quite follow this kind of, broadly speaking, historical transformation or series of transformations. When you look at it, displays of museum objects fluctuate instead between their role as objects and certainly still now as objects of us kind of socialist science and their historical role as what I would call cultural relics. Now the term in Mandarin for a museum, Bao Guan, is in fact three characters, meaning firstly large number, secondly objects, and thirdly in a large room or in a large space. So the actual term in Mandarin for a museum refers to the special character and characteristics of objects in a space. And the principal state institution for the management of museums in China, or for collections, is called the State Bureau of Cultural Relics, in translation. Now, I'm quite interested in the way in which, in China, in China the Mandarin term, Wen Wu, is translated as relic. And I'm, trying to, I'm quite interested, in, therefore, in understanding how this translation refers in some significant way to Chinese attitudes to museum objects. I'm interested, of course, because in Europe, relics were a suppressed category. You only have to think that when relics were suppressed in the 16th and early 17th century, what rose to take its place? The Cabinet of Curiosities. The museum. So the museum collection is basically a take, took the place of the relic as a symbolic object, as a, as a sort of object of devotion. So relics have, in the European context, a very ambiguous meaning attached to them. Now, because of the Da Vinci Code, the Catholic Church and the Vatican sends out messages all over the place saying, lock up your relics, you know, sort of hide them away. If they're, in, if they're looked at, you know, if they, if they can be looked at, okay, but they mustn't be touched or licked or kissed or smelt or whatever, which is what you're supposed to do with relics after all. Okay, the, ter the Mandarin term for, for this translated term relic is Wen Wu, which is used in the description of the State Bureau, uh, by the State Bureau responsible for cultural heritage in China. It's originally a Confucian 4th century BC term 
used to describe ritual objects, particularly the Shang and the Western Zhou era periods, which should be preserved, or at least by the Han period, there should be a concern with preserving them. By the 20th century, the term Wen Wu came to refer to any object that was made by human hands, used to verify past stages, social stages, and evolution. It was Mao who reintroduced the term Wen Wu as relic into this idea of a uh, scientific socialist account of the past. Because the Wen Wu or the relic could be used as a fossil to identify the past stages in evolution leading to the current uh, happy state of, uh, of, of China. At the moment it's estimated there are about 11 million relics in contemporary Chinese museums. So, there's been a lot of collecting going on in the last 20 or 30 years, and there's even more. You know, there's, there's tales of uh, individual Chinese buying pots and taking them on their laps on the plane back to Beijing. You know, buy them here. You go to Camden Passage in London and buy your pot and take it home. It's a duty to do that. So what is meant by the term relic? Wen Wu in Mandarin literally is two characters. Wen, which refers to being literate. So that's its original 4th century BC, Confucian meaning. And Wu referring to an object. So the term Wen Wu was firstly, which first appeared in a book, in the book of the left, uh, published sometime between 376 and 360 BC. And it refers to ritual objects, which by the Tang and the Song dynasties, with the rise of interest in studying antiquities among Confucian intellectuals, had expanded to include ancient objects more generally, and to refer to kinds of collections of antiquities that intellectuals and elites were increasingly to make, particularly in the Ming and the Qing periods. So the original emphasis on collections of relics, or Wen Wu, was on the preservation of objects of ritual character, became extended to more Confucian ideals of significant objects to collect, significant to literate intellectuals. As I just said, in the Mao era, Wen Wu or cultural relics were redefined as museum objects, whose object, who these objects having the scientific value needed to document each stage in social evolution. And under the adage of seek truth through facts, Objects were relics because as fossils of history they possess an objectivity and reality which give time very special value. In quotes from Mao, one of Mao's sayings. Cultural relics here mean a kind of witnessing, therefore, on the past. Part of the reason why it's the personal effects, objects belonging to major figures of the past that are kept and put on display, often as witnesses to an important event. This approach to objects as relics that have scientific value contributes to explain the importance attributed to their authenticity. Cultural relics should be made, should be original and human-made artifacts. Great concern is expressed about the circulation of copies and fakes. In particular, relics should be displayed as authentic personal items in historical exhibitions. For example, this is a reconstruction of the first meeting house of the Communist Party in Shanghai. And what is, what is reconstructed is the everyday objects, um, the pens, the pipe, uh, the, the, the slippers, as well as the eating implements, as here, uh, of the first meeting of Chiang and the, in, the, in the first Congress of the Communist Party in 1921. Personal belongings of the attendance of the congressages, clothing, tobacco pipes, typewriters, badges, uniforms, tea sets. In other words, authenticity is in the detail of things. Literally, they were to be touched and used by the great leader, or had been touched and used by the great leaders, or by ordinary soldiers, and later on by the soldiers of the Long March. And as we'll see in Think events like the anti-Japanese war. Relics, therefore, by being hand-created, have something of the same aura as saintly relics in Western discourse. 
In other words, they are objects that have touched the bodies of divine creatures or humans that have something of that aura, being as they are great leaders or heroes. It's, important to point, it's an important point to make that cultural relics are not things in the Western philosophical sense of how an object appears to consciousness, ourselves intentional objects, or Heidegger's ready to hand. The assessment of qualities of things through their use, in other words, is intimate physical or embodied sense of a thing, or a Latourian relational object. In Christian and Buddhist thought, relics are defined by their efficacy. What do they do? Do they heal? Do they cure? Do they divide? They prophesize. But the notion of Wim Woo does not really correspond with this. The stress is rather on them as inherited, transmitted, ritual objects, or objects that allow direct contact with the makers and users of the past. Not as persons, but as ritual official, officials, as scholars, or as culture heroes. But still, there is this focus on embodied contact. It suggests that nevertheless, the meaning of relic as embodied in some way is not far off the mark. So, I quite like this translation into the term relic. And it has some quite interesting things about why we don't like, why in Western discourse people don't like the term relic. In the last decade, a new term, Yuchan, has appeared in, uh, in discourse, uh, referring to historical remains, objects, architecture, and intangible cultural heritage as well. That is, which describe prior to describe private collections as property. Yi mean, remain, means remains, while chan means property. Therefore, yi chan refers specifically, literally, to inherited property. Today, yi chan is in daily conversation, means money inherited from parents. Is also the money that parents give, particularly a son, to get married. Therefore, one has to use a kind of combination of the term wenwa for culture and yichan as cultural property to refer to cultural heritage in Mandarin today. Wenwu implies, therefore, treatment of museum objects as authentic relics with this kind of quasi-embodied connection to the past sort of sense of custodial duty to them as having some special reason for their preservation and importance and also a sort of relationship to Yi Chan in terms of their senses having an intangible relationship with each other because they come from the same origin. Now there's also some connection with the state-led revival of Confucian ideals of moral obligation in contemporary China here. Relics should belong in and go back to museums in the provinces where they originate. One of the obligations felt by people in diasporas in Malaysia and Indonesia, by descendants of Hakka migrants living in Taiwan, and this is after several 200 years or so, has been the return of temple artifacts and images to original ancestral temples, like in Fujian in, in southeastern China. These temples that have been destroyed or lost in the Cultural Revolution, so that the images and the objects are returned so they can be rebuilt and the relics in them worshipped again. And there's obviously complicated things about the making of relics here. We're not talking about, you know, just fixed ideas of objects with pattern. Yet at the same time, there's an emphasis on relic conversation and protection as uniquely Chinese. Here, the point about the Getty. Getty sweeping in, you know, we can do this universal conservation for China, and they've been roundly rejected. The Chinese state actively enters also into local markets, and increasingly abroad, to buy relics for state museums. There are state-owned antique stores, state-sanctioned private auction houses, as well as active, an active illegal trade in antiquities, which is not really strongly suppressed, as long as it's antiquities, much to the chagrin of archaeologists. It's important to see the accumulation of relics as an obligation and almost a cultural right that can be carried out at both personal and collective group levels. This active encouragement of circulation actually is not too surprising in the context of the wider sense of the importance of exchange and substitution in both pre-Mao and contemporary China. I'd like to go into but 
the world at the moment. But it means there's a hierarchy of acquisition, a hierarchy of circulation, from the family shrine, the ancestral hall, to the local temple, to the local prefecture, to the city, and to national museums. So again, I come back to this point of scale and scale of jumps. I've emphasized the special character of the museum object in China, in particular its revival as relic from the Mao era to now, to point to the personal character that objects can have for people and collectors. Also the sense of filial duty that people will have to caring for them, visiting them, preventing their disappearance, and bringing them back. It's not surprising that modern billionaires in China will spend millions repatriating valuable unique relics from abroad back to, from abroad back to China and then present them to an appropriate national museum. A great deal of personal kudos and personal influence obviously flows from such magnanimous gestures by individuals contributing to the social good of China, but it's also a filial duty. Well, as you'll have gathered, the administration and creation of cultural heritage is <coughs> heavily top-down in many respects. But the rise of the private museum and the idea of the private initiative and idea of private collecting, in a more bottom-up sense, relates to this issue of personal attachment to museum objects, to this idea of filial duty. And my colleague Harriet Evans and I have focused on, particularly I think, the rise of museum initiative, uh, private initiatives in museums and in heritage projects, partly because it's more bottom-up, maybe it's more open to some kind of ethnographic approach, and also it's a very growing phenomenon, which is not being suppressed at all, it has this very complex relationship to the apparently top-down. So the words top-down and bottom-up, I'm beginning to uh, think, are not very appropriate. Again, it's about scale. Up to about 2000, there were about 50 private museums in China. By 2006, there were 400 registered private museums. According to various authors, like Song, in these museums, most of the collections are obtained and have been obtained in recent years. They're mainly historical artifacts of a sort of everyday material culture sense, rather than art. They're folk art pieces, all their pieces show personal creativity. So my question here is why are so many high private museums and collections being formed in China? Firstly, I think there's, and just some just background point, there is the gradual economic reform that is emphasizing private market enterprises, private ownerships, particularly of artworks and creativity. There are, there are something like 160 reg registered auction houses in China in 2005, and not to mention numerous antiquity markets. Second, making a collection has a long tradition amongst Chinese intellectuals, the wealthy, the imperial courts of China. It's a, it's a responsibility to make a collection. It's a, it's a proper thing to do. So it's said that the sudden growth of art market antiquity markets is reviving a long durée, a long-term historical tradition. It's also said in China that the collecting is always active during a flourishing period of economic growth. With the economic boom, there's been a growth of the new rich in China, and this new social class not only reflects a rising estate price and growing luxury goods market, but also their ability to become cultural heroes themselves. And therefore it's a strong Confucian-based ideal that many of the private museum collections and uh, have a social value and influence that comes from the contribution that you should make to society. So some of the examples I'm going to, two or three examples if I have time to, uh, you know, to look at in more detail. Um, when I first talked to them, they were very proud about what they were doing. The director of uh, a private tea horse trading museum in Lijiang, which is one of the big, you know, sort of heritage tourist centres, you know, in Yunnan, you know, said to me, as a Chinese, I always feel I have to do something for the country, for the future of Chinese people, after I became rich. Now, you know, that's um, what you would say anyway, <laughs> in, in that context, particularly if you want to, uh, you know, sort of make your mark. 
But there was a seriousness to him. There was a kind of passion to him. I wasn't, I, I didn't just sort of immediately dis dismiss it as, oh, you have to say kind of thing. The director of the Beijing Yinstown Museum, the one you know, I just showed you, the big Bronze Age Museum, takes it personally that he built the museum. He says, I built the museum, cost millions, hundreds of millions, you know, if you had to build this. I built the museum for society and to present Chinese culture to the public. Another director of um, what, the private museum in Nanjing, you know, and one said to in an interview with a journalist, what I have done is all for the state and all the objects will be donated to the state after I die. So again, it's very long, all, many of them, all of them that I've, I've talked to have said, when I die, or at some point, if it becomes unsuccessful, unstable in some way, I will be giving, donating the collection, donating the museum to the state. This sense of accumulating collections and creating museums therefore relates the self to the collective in a quite tangible sense of shared being. But it's also good business. It creates a sense of obligation and recognition of the individual by the state. So attention to the local is not synonymous with the idea that the local has a transparent claim to truth and authenticity. Nor does such emphasis on the local necessarily set up a binary contestation of the dominant governmental or global level. There are now many different private initiatives encouraged at provincial level, if not at central state level. And at first glance, many of these, and we've only begun to study, I've only started to study three of them, might appear to be motivated by entrepreneurial and developmental interests, but they're also very important in terms of their implicit connections at, with state and prefectural levels of validation and legitimation. So whilst the commodification of heritage is seen as a necessary source of income, the inspiration for the private heritage projects we've begun to study derives also from ethical and ontological concerns with memory, history and community. And it's very personally embedded, I think, in the passions of the individuals starting this. They've often made their great piles of wealth, they've had great political influence, and they're in their 50s, early 60s, they start to build a museum. This reveals interesting insights into how local projects inspired by an ethical identification with the community they correspond both with a collective identity rooted in attachment to place, material objects and historical knowledge, maybe embedded in skills and artifacts, and also have entrepreneurial and government interest in its economic and commercial benefits. So the emergence of cultural initiatives that contrast with and implicitly contest official articulations of heritage facilitates a mingling of local civil and official interests indeed a blurring of boundaries between them, in which the authority of the latter to determine the fate of the former is neither clear nor automatic. And the interconnection between the moral and ethical quality of the passions embedded in these heritage projects with the politics of entrepreneurial and government involvement give these projects a very distinctive character. So I think the notion of heritage activists therefore comes to mind. The individual who is inspired by a vision and a mission to retrieve memory and history of place, of practice and object, as the foundation of collective sustainability. And the key individuals involved in these projects often launch their heritage projects after, as I said, successful careers in politics and business. And they tap into extensive and influential social and political networks. They're often from the army. They've often already had high political positions. And they use these networks quite without any compunction in order to pursue these private interests. Moreover, the physical sites of their initiatives are all situated in or near other massive heritage projects, more state-run projects. They're well acquainted with the concept and practice of heritage as an economic and cultural resource crucial to provincial and state economies. They're not therefore immune to its trickle-down effects. However, the particular histories and cultural practices these individuals seek to conserve belongs to a geographical and ethnic terrain at the margins of the main preoccupations of hand-centred histories. And that's why it's quite interesting that these tend to be in these kind of, these private initiatives that I've been working on, Yunnan and Sichuan, but others are up here at Xinhai, in Xinjiang. 
In other words, where there's strong indigenous ethnic, the, the sites of the 56 ethnic minorities, but particularly in this area here, and, and clearly now in Mongolia as well, uh, as against here. Okay, the three key figures involved in the projects I'm describing very quickly now are all charismatic men in their early 50s, wealthy, politically well-connected. They all share a sense of wanting to return something to the communities in which they grew up, so statements like that are made. Two in Yunnan are Nashi, and this plays a prominent role in, in other words, they're ethnically defined uh, in the formal hierarchy as Nashi, and this plays a prominent role in how they define their heritage projects. Three case studies are just very briefly describing, more by just showing you slides, I think, now. It's an ancient village of the Dongba culture, um, Dongba shamanic, shamanic culture, or ritual, um, in, uh, particularly in the making of Baidi, a small Nashi village in Baijing Township in Shangri-La Prefecture. Second one will be the Tea and Horse Museum in Lijiang, which is this big tourist centre in Yunnan province now. And the third is probably the largest private museum collective in China now, the, Yantuan, the Fang Yantuan uh, Museum Cluster in Anran, uh, Sichuan province. Let me start with uh, Dongba. What has happened here is that uh, a Mr. Hay, has, uh, who was a mayor, of a local, you know, a town mayor, city mayor, and also before that, a prominent uh, uh, member of the, uh, in, in, the, in the People's Liberation Army, is Nashi, and he has come back to this one centre of uh, uh, Baida province, the main centre for Dongba ritual, and he's come back to the mountain, this beautiful mountain which has got these turquoise lakes, but the actual mountain is made, is made of the pouring out of limestone and calcareous deposits over the hill. And on top of this mountain are the supposed original ritual shrines of the Dongba ritual specialists. His concern is the ritual specialists are losing, they're getting old, the young are only remembering parts of it. It's a classic kind of salvage, if you like, program. He has and this uh, little circle of ritual specialists brought together in Baidi village. He's collected all the, the materials from these houses from all, the, all, over, uh, all over Yunnan, all over the Dongbanashi region, collecting fragments and bits of the old houses which are all being knocked down, burnt and turned into things with cement and, and blocks, collected them all together and had them rebuilt to create this sort of circular uh, sort of series of houses for the ritual specialists to come together, the old ritual specialists to come together and stay there. It's very classic. You know, there should be a watermill, there should be the drying racks, uh, there should be the, the, you know, the, the houses. And, but there's no great focus on getting tourists. Tourists can't go and live there. You can go and visit, you can spend a few hours during the day, but you can't spend the night there. So there's a whole thing about what is you know, this structure about. So what it's about is about being able to recover technical skills. But these are paper making, like in this case, homemade paper techniques of the Nashi in Shangri-La County. It takes on, it took six hours on a bus for me to just get from the local uh, centre of Shangri-La you know, to this little village. So he's not making it easy for anybody to get there. But he puts up in English and in Mandarin his, what he's trying to do here, which is have one house devoted to the preservation and to the reconstruction of paper making, which is the basic material on which the Dongba ritual shamanic script is written. This is Mr. Hay here. Oh, sorry, I can't see the talk. Um, Rose here. Um, and uh, he's giving you know, a description of how he got the materials together uh, you know, for this. But it's, there are cases here he's making his kind of collection. And this is a really important point on top of the mountain at 6 o'clock in the morning. You're taken up there and there's this 
rather hybrid version, clearly, you know, as sort of Buddhist chants and things here. But it, here's Mr. Hay, and he's concerned with restoring these ritual shelters and bringing the old Donba ritual specialists up to these sites so that they will uh, remember how to, how to be good shamanic specialists again. And these are sites anyway where not only are all the materials here, but the old people do come here anyway to see this man and you know sort of and, and have him officiate. Second example is the Tea Horse uh, Museum in the Jang. Again, the example is one of uh, a man who has uh, recovered his own uh, uh, position um, after having been out of uh, uh, Yunnan for many years, and uh, he's now concerned with uh, coming back to Lijiang and particularly what to do about this building, which is the ancestral hall of his family. It's adjacent to uh, the Dongbar Cultural Research, Research Institute in, 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 in Lijiang, and it also, as a museum, has close links with Yunnan University. So he's making these kind of networks and connections and connectivities in order to restore what he sees as a past. The museum's main exhibit is a massive diorama on two floors uh, describing the tea horse trade route which was a network of mule caravan trails through the high mountains of Yunnan province. More than a thousand years ago, the route linked Yunnan, one of the first tea-producing regions, with northern India via Burma and with Tibet, and with central China via the Sichuan province. So starting with its origins in Puerkan County, near the Simao prefecture in Yunnan, the diorama, this is the general, and this is Mr. Wu, this gentleman here, who is the retired uh, army colonel who has transformed his uh, ancestral hall into a museum. This is the diorama. So starting with its origin, the diorama depicts the changing landscape of the route 6,000 kilometers in, in extent. Uh, the activities of and encounters between the mule drivers, the traders, the tax officials, the innkeepers, as the tea wound its way in panniers carried by horses, uh, you know, sort of over these routes. The ground floor of the museum sells a few items associated with the tea horse trade. You can buy your poor tea there, you can buy bags and teacups, and you can go and drink poor tea. But apart from these, the exhibit contains no authentic objects collected from the route. It's the diorama, which is the pride of Mr. Wu in terms of how he's built this museum. And it's the small captions that he's written himself to describe this massive you know, sort of trade route in tea and the tea horse trade that he's very proud of. From the perspective of the founder or curator of the museum, its main public purpose is to re-establish the links between the tea horse route and what he sees as its Nashi environment. What made you know, Nashi historically important. However, the simple but intricate exhibit conceals other passions and commitments beside, behind its status as a local museum in a World Heritage Site. The son of a wealthy Nashi family, Mr. Mu had a long and successful career in, in the army before turning to what he said, going down to the sea, which means going to the coast to get involved in business. And between 1997 and 2007, he worked in Hainan and Guangxi and Shenzhen, becoming a prosperous businessman, dealing, amongst other things, in environmental equipment. So his interest, as he initially described it, was to do something that would make him happy. He spent years thinking about how to set up a museum, during which time he visited many museums throughout China. His initial idea was to establish a hotel and a museum as one thing. And his family ancestral home, Hall, had been converted in 1998 into what Mr. Mu described as Li Zhang's best hotel. 
But he said he didn't have enough space to include a museum as well. What he really wanted was a museum. So when he saw the diorama of a film um, in Guangzhou, uh, in a movie factory, this gave him the idea that the film could be turned into a diorama and he could have a, a museum based on the film. He posted an ad in the local employment centre and, re and has recruited 20 high school graduates, including many who had grown up in the poor, poorer mountainous regions surrounding Lijiang. By 2007, he had still not found any adequate space for his museum, so he decided to convert his family hotel into a museum. And he says Lijiang officials would be very supportive, but he had wanted to help him, but he rejected their offer. In, you know, to give him more space and funds because he wanted it to be his own personal project even though it's cost him an investment of 12 million won. I want, he says, to do one good thing in my life, he says, suggesting that this was a feature of China's cultural tradition and that's something that me as a foreigner couldn't really understand. Now neither of these projects are spectacular in theoretical or entrepreneurial terms. The simplicity of Mr. Moo's museum or the tranquility of Mr. Hay's village with a few wooden houses, a stone walkway, offer a striking contrast, both physically and emotionally, with the colourful heritage exoticism of something like Li Jiang. But my third example, the Fan Yangchuan Museum Cluster, is by far and away the most ambitious and politically vulnerable of these three private museum centres. The brainchild of Mr. Fan, a former PLA, that's People's Liberation Army officer from Sichuan, who uh, after the army turned to business and real estate, the museum is, 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 is based in the famous historic small town of Anren, the home of the land reform hate figure Lu Wenchai. It's a vast complex. This is Mr. Fan, and this is the entrance to his museum cluster. It's a vast complex of 15 exhibition halls and installations devoted to China's 20th century history, covering an area of 500 acres and featuring something like 8 million individual artifacts in his collection, with 121 of them classified as Class I national treasures. It's the largest private museum in China, but though, as we noted at the beginning of this my talk, it's upheld as a model you know, it has been held as a model for museum privatization in Sichuan. But it's also frequently criticized by particularly the central authorities for its controversial narrative of China's 20th century history. The museum exhibits are currently presented under four main themes. The War of Resistance, what he calls the Red Era, Folklore, and the Earthquake. The first five exhibition halls that he built, starting in 2005, were devoted to the war of anti-Japanese resistance. Interesting point being that he's, this is the uh, entrance to the uh, um, museums, the five complex museums for the uh, war of anti-Japanese resistance. And he makes no difference between the contribution of the Republican Army and the People's Library Army to the anti-Japanese war, which is, and I'll show you in a minute, a rather shocking thing for him to be able to, to do. This is a 10-year Cultural Revolutionary Museum under construction, so he's actually now proposing to actually build a museum to the Cultural Revolution. And if he does and he gets permission, I think he'll be the first in China. And this is uh, one of the galleries in the uh, anti-Japanese war, one of the anti-Japanese war museums. And uh, uh, again, as you can look at it, but uh, you can get a, a sort of mix of the Republican Army and the People's Army and, its, uh, and, their, and what he sees as their joint role in the anti-Japanese war. At the time of them writing this, the, the museum's official web, website has suddenly become inaccessible. Uh, Mr. Fan's plans to open an exhibition hall to the Great Famine, the 1959-61, when millions died in China, 
which he hoped to have opened in 2010, has just been denied. So he's really pushing at the boundaries of what you can do in China with a museum. And I think there's very clear signs that the local, at the local provincial level, he's gaining support, or he's being given support, by people who want him to be able to start saying things, to start opening up narratives about China's past, which you can't do at an official prefectorial or state level. He must be given, being given some kind of support, because he just wouldn't be able to do what he's been doing so far, in a purely uh, private sense. This is the Red Era Museum, and I think this is something which I do find interesting in a sense of coming back to the point about relics, that there's a, uh, he recognises that the museum for the Red Era has to show repetition. Not only it's the mundane things, you have an image or a saying of, of Mao in your teacups, in the bowls that you eat your food from, you know, when you go to a lavatory or something, there will be a saying for Mao. But also it's a repetition of images. And he captures this by just simply having collected hundreds of thousands of objects of the Cultural Revolution. He was collecting in the 1990s and uh, even before that, according to him, when nobody was interested in this material. And he went and he had teams of people all over China collecting objects of the Cultural Revolution. He now has this warehouse with millions, hundreds of thousands of posters. Harriet has a little collection of 8,000 Cultural Revolution posters in the uh, University of Westminster. It's just opened an exhibition uh, a couple of days ago. There's one that she's very proud of them. When, he, when she said to Mr. Fan, I've just got this little co collection of 8,000, he said, I've got 300,000. It's in my warehouse, I'll show them to you. There, is a main, there, are, there are many um, very interesting pieces that, uh, you know, to, you know, that he has on display. But again, I think he focuses quite rightly on this idea of repetition and on the idea of the uh, way in which, in this case, the objects became part of, you know, sort of the everyday practice, material practice. And this is his... Uh, uh, pièce de résistance in the, uh, <laughs> you know, sort of in, in the uh, uh, the Red Era Museum, uh, the Hall of Clocks, each clock having an image or saying of Mao, and all the clocks are working, and they're all about death, as he sees it. It's an image, a wall of clocks, which tells him about how the Red Era was really a period of death, which he can't write or say anything about, but that's clearly when you talk to him what he wants. What, and money, the, this wall of clocks was his own design. The captions in all the museums are written by Mr. Fan. He has nobody coming in to advise him. He does it all himself. He goes around museums and looks. He gets people like me and uh, Harriet to have sent him, you know, sort of uh, his techni technical stuff and examples and materials. <coughs> He's already amassed considerable wealth through various other things, and he's quite happy to spend it in this way. And he's obviously someone uh, that has a, 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 a personal historical reason for this, which when it comes uh, to talking to him about this, it comes down to his, the relationship he had with his father, because his father was uh, in, the, in the PLA, in the Korean War, um, was served the, 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 you know, the in the army throughout the very, very difficult periods. When it came to the Cultural Revolution, his father was condemned and sent, when uh, Mr. Fan was nine, was sent to a village for a rehabilitation. He was beaten up very badly and injured. And Mr. Fan will now say, my main aim with the Cultural Revolution Museum in particular, but with my whole museum complex, is to understand what happened to us all. What happened to my father? Why was my father? punished in this way, what did it mean for me? He's an incredibly charismatic guy, you know, I must say. But also, why for many of us, we have to understand what happened to us in this period. And that this is the only way that you can start to have this, this narrative. Okay, three projects I've very briefly described are extremely different from each other. 
history, memory, and heritage converge in different ways in their combinations of objects, sites, practices, and narratives. The Dongba village brings together individuals and collective memories of identification with the history of something local, of the national culture as a simple cultural centre. Its traditional houses, reconstructed out of discarded wooden beams, other sites of knowledge production, things like paper, leather, alcohol making, as well as Dongba learning and ritual practices. Heritage here appears as a material and spatial linking of the past with the present and future through literally climbing up the mountain to the Dongba sacred place of offering and engaging in the processes of making paper and leather. Mr. Mu's diorama reminds spectators of memories and histories of places where they and their ancestors lived, but they can't actually have ever had a kind of complete image or understanding of 6,000 you know, sort of mile, kilometers of uh, roots. But it's about the significance of ethnic history and mapping its importance in local, regional, and national economies. And Mr. Fan's extraordinary museum, in contrast, foregrounds something about authentic objects and installations in massive internal and external spaces of extraordinary symbolic and aesthetic power. There's something about the immediacy of the museum's appeal in its performative address to memories of long-suppressed histories, of hidden histories. But connecting these three projects is a materialization of memories and histories as an ethical commitment. All three bear the imprint of personal memories of belonging to family, community, and, in Mr. Fan's case, the nation. The ontological character of their projects lies in their capacity to speak for themselves, as it were, in linking place and space, time, object and local knowledge with the people of the relevant localities and histories. And it's in this light that we understand something of the redemptive and curative quality of these heritage projects. All of them address histories of marginalisation, and in Mr. Fan's case, directly oppression and suffering. Yet we have to bear in mind that the 20th century histories of their ethnic communities and their personal histories and geographical regions uh, contain bitter experiences of military conflict, famine and violent assault on local cultural practices. And these heritage projects are retrieved, uh, are, are the person that is the retriever of community memories and history <coughs> is simultaneously a claim for recognition of their survival and sustainability, that they have survived against all odds. I think that's what is very strongly being said. Projects as, in, in many ways, are reassertions of also of ownership of economic as well as cultural activity. So like in Mr. Moo's case, there's a continuation in uh, wanting to have a significant place of culture in the market economy. Mr. Fan's redemptive purpose is more explicit. I quote, he said to me once, I wanted to know the truth in response to our questions about how he, provide, how he decided to form an historical narratives of his museum. He said his museum is a place that offers the living and their descendants a spatialized and materialized recognition of suppressed suffering and trauma. Moreover, these are sort of moral, search for moral redress of wrongs, the admission that wrongs were made. Uh, that things were done, that destructive uh, issues are there, and the recognition of that is what's being sought after. So finally, quite, I think there's a transcendental move here, and it's against the grinding egalitarianism of the monumental museum. The heavy sense of the monumental museum, which is all architecture and not necessarily much about content or where the content is very repetitive, repetitively the same. So when Mr. Fan makes a point about in the Cultural Revolution about the repetitiveness of the egalitarianness of the collections in the, in the Mao sense, I think he's making a more significant point about the nature of museums in general, and that is that they should have a certain, a certain transcendental quality. And let me just stick, stay just end with Mr. Fan. This is his... This is just one aspect of his uh, warehouse. He just has these vast piles. In this case, these are suitcases. <laughs> it's piled up from the Cultural Revolution. But in his museum now, he would just show 
rows of case after case of clocks, of wirelesses, radios. And perhaps the most important and interesting of his whole museum is this display of the culture heroes of the, uh, of the, in the anti-Japanese war, in which Mao was shown side by side with Chiang Kai-shek. This is Chiang Kai-shek and this is, um, this is Chiang. So, my last point is, I think there is a drive towards the transcendental in the private museums. And it's a move to try to domesticate the grindingness of the monumental state museums. There's something like that, I think, going on as well. Thank you very much. Thank you.